Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found The Q Word Podcast. Uh, well, we'll start with our regular. Hey, Nisa, how are you? Hi, Lisa. I'm doing great. Excellent. It's been a while since we've had a guest in the house. So why don't we get started and introduce uh, who's joining us today? So we have a um, nurse leader. She is a helicopter EMS flight nurse and helicopter rescue specialist with Starflight, which is in Travis County, Austin, Texas. She, before that, was a U.S. Army combat medic with the 101st Airborne Division. Is that how you say it? 101st? Correct, yeah. Airborne Division. Wow, um, you're a badass. <laughs> oh, you we haven't even scratched the surface yet. Oh, my so God. she is uh, uh, well known for teaching and speaking and in general being a nurse leader. She's very involved in the foam ed community. She also serves um, with the social media and critical care uh, movement. That's the SMAC movement, which hopefully she'll tell us a little bit more about. And she's involved in the teaching co-op, uh, the St. How do you say it? Em- St. Emlins. Emlins. Yep. St. Emlins blog and podcast uh, and, and multiple other ventures. Um, do you want to tell us any others? That I, missed I think that that's, it sounds like enough. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is my friend, Ashley Liebig. This is the, um, the bio that I put together online, but this is the one that she actually wrote. That's even better. I, I mean, that's super impressive. Like, right. That's crazy. But this is my favorite. Hers says, um, I talk about some stuff. I write about some things. I think about some stuff. I'm high strung. I never sleep. I procrastinate, and most importantly, I'm a mom. <laughs> oh, I love that bio so much. Oh, I also have I also have one that ends with, and I think talking about myself in third person is weird. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. That's my that's my favorite bio of all time. That's awesome. And so, uh, this is my friend Ashley Liebig. We're so happy to have you to talk about this really important topic that we're going to cover today. And I wanted to start, though, if you would tell us and tell Lisa about um, the 101st Airborne. Yeah. Was that right? 101st Airborne Division. Yep. Uh, I know the story, but I was wondering if you would tell the listeners about how you ended up, you specifically as an individual, being put in country in Iraq with this division to do the combat medic role. Um, so I was with, um, a, an attachment company, um, that was there, that was deployed with the 101st, uh, they were part of the 101st, um, uh, Charlie Company 326. And, um, but I think what you're specifically referring to is that I was tasked forward to the infantry, um, in Yusufia with Bravo Company, um, of the 502nd Infantry. And so, um, I was tasked forward mostly because I, begged and pleaded and asked for the opportunity to go and um, live out with the guys at a um, forward operating base. Um, and so I did. I went and, and stayed with them for a few months to take care of, primarily to take care of uh, women and children. And it was in 2005 and 2006 during the time when um, the area, the region that we were in was called the Triangle of Death. And so we took a number of casualties of both civilians and soldiers at that time. 
Wow. So you were working with the civilian population? Yeah. So, um, so I was, I was there because cultural differences, um, kept us from, from caring for women and, uh, young girls. And so, um, that's primarily the reason that a, another female is needed to, to kind of triage those situations and to take care of, uh, of those victims. And, uh, in addition to that, I also obviously took care of my colleagues. That's amazing. What a, what a drive you must have had to go out there and put yourself in the middle of that. That's some dedication. Well, I mean, it was honestly, if, if it was a different time, right, it was over 10 years ago now, um, almost 15 years ago. And um, if it was a different time and, and they would at that time had allowed women to stay um, in infantry positions like that, I would have probably stayed in the military my entire life. Um, I loved being the mom of uh, all those guys, even though I was, you know, around their same age and um, taking care of them and looking after them, nagging them about, you know, clean socks and had they had enough water and all those kinds of things. And uh, it was really the the highlight of my military career and probably one of the one of the biggest honors of my life working alongside them. Honestly, I can't hear this story enough. First of all, because it's a, it's a really amazing story, but. One of the reasons why I asked you to tell that in conjunction with what we're talking about today is you are no stranger to taking on projects that maybe don't have a precedent, but maybe are necessary at the time, things mm. that make sense, things that are best for the patient. And that is really what we're talking about today as well. This is another project that you've taken on and become a nurse leader uh, with that is something that is ultimately going to be best for the patient. So what we're talking about today is nurse-led ACLS, nurse-led advanced cardiac life support. Before before you explain what this is, can you tell me what a what a standard uh, traditional um, ACLS code looks like? Um, one that's not nurse-led so that we can sort of set the stage to see what where you're going with yeah. the, from there? Yeah, sure. So so I've been flying for some years now and so have been all over the large level one and level two trauma centers um, all over the state of Texas um, in, in all of our large cities. And I have watched, um, uh, you know, ACLS be, or well, I guess a code scenario be run um, in every possible way that they can be, I think. And I was always left kind of underwhelmed by the experience because it always seems like a total cluster. People are shouting. There's, you know, everyone's um, sort of in disarray. It's challenging to figure out who's in charge, who's the leader. Um, and so so this was something that always kind of um, perplexed me. And, and I was like, there has to be a better way, but I'm not certain that I knew what that better way was until I witnessed it um, as a, uh, when I went out to San Diego um, to help with the reanimate course with uh, Drs. Joe Belezzo and Zach Shiner and Scott Weingart. And that's where the first time that I experienced what a sort of code utopia could look like. And then I became really inspired and real annoying about it. (laughs) (laughs) So it's not like organized chaos that is actual chaos is what's normally happening during. Yeah, I don't I've never seen I I mean, I've not seen off very often organized chaos. It just looks like an can we swear on this podcast? It looks like a shit show. Yeah. So um, so what I what I witnessed with these guys and learned from um, the incredible nurses there was um, that if 
if we put some steps in place and we make some minor changes, we're talking about little teeny changes that we can absolutely change the resuscitation for our patients and give them a better chance. So what kind of changes are we talking about? There's a few things. The, the very first thing, well, we talk about team resuscitation. So that has a few um, components. So that has, um, first off, is nurse-led ACLS. I'm not talking about nurses taking the code away from the physician. We're talking about the nurse leading ACLS, delivering cardiac algorithms and drugs that are appropriate for that patient scenario. So this nurse becomes the, the, the code boss, the, the alpha nurse, whatever you want to call her, and she's the nurse who's in charge of that room. So she's the command and control, the roles are assigned at the beginning of shift, who's doing what. Um, she runs that room and manages that and then runs the ACLS algorithm. What, the next thing that comes um, into play is the metalectric nurse, um, the alpha doc, you can have a secondary line doc, but all of these roles are very specific and defined per facility. And so those assigned roles really matter. Um, the, the other important component of this is ergonomics. If people are running around and moving, you know, like crashing into each other or they can't find the equipment they need and doors are getting slammed and everyone's frantic, it adds to the level of chaos of that, co of that code scenario. So if we can put things where they make sense, because you know what happens is a lot of times architects come in and supply people and they put things where they think they should go and they don't ever ask the end user. So nurses don't walk in and move things out of their cart. They just do what they've, what they were experienced the very first time they walked in and that's what they become used to and they've adapted because that's what nurses do. They adapt instead of looking at it from a different perspective and saying, gosh, what if we move this over here? What if we move these things over here? What if this cabinet looked like this and really changing the schematic of the room so that it was organized for that, um, that type of resuscitation? I've been in so many places where something like the CPR stool can't be found. I mean, for real, we can't find a stool to do CPR. And so that's where ergonomics of the room really come into play. So now this patient isn't getting good quality CPR. We have to get somebody taller. We have to move the bed. And all of those fractional seconds really start to matter. So um, it's really about team resuscitation, having assigned roles, letting nurses run ACLS, um, and then the key to all the ergonomics in the room, but the key to all of that means that that alpha doc, that head physician in the room has this massive potential, which is, is cognitive offloading. They can remove themselves from worrying about if x-ray was contacted or if we're going to, you know, if CT, the CT scanner is available or they can remove themselves from all of that command and control BS. They can remove themselves from an ACLS algorithm because we can all read the algorithm and they can start to think immediately about uh, with uninterrupted thought process about the H's and T's, about all the things that matter, talking to a patient's family, getting a more thorough history, understanding really why this patient is in this situation and not having to worry about how often epi is given they pay a lot of money to have those giant doctor brains right and go to school for a really long time they don't need to be standing reading an algorithm right we should put those beautiful brains to work and let them do what they're what they should, are supposed to do and so when they have that potential to cognitive offload and just focus their differential diagnosis increases exponentially their communication with family members and be, to be able to talk about what that um, patient really needs or what that patient would really want increases exponentially. 
So an ER nurse is already trained on ACLS, obviously. Is this, yeah, so is this something that um, you, you have a new patient and everybody goes into the room and somebody at that point declares, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, or is this something that's predefined? Absolutely uh, predefined because, okay. because every facility is going to be different in what they can do. If you have a small rural hospital and you have four people there at night, you're going to have to give people different kinds of jobs than when you're in a level one center and people are, you know, everywhere, right? And there's students everywhere and all those kinds of things. So you have to have um, sit down with all the players, um, have a conference with them about, you know, about the ergonomics, where things should be in the room, redesign that, um, decide who is going to be responsible for what tasks and what things um, is, um, is respiratory intubating, is anesthesia intubating, is a doctor intubating, um, make rules for all of those kinds of things and make it really, really clear. And also, if you're not participating in this in this code or in this resuscitation event, you don't get to be in the room. And people really have angst with this because how do we train people and how do we do whatever? Well, maybe you can put one student behind you as long as they stand still or one resident behind you as long as they don't touch anything and don't talk and don't move and just observe. But when we add people, we add to the stress of the scenario. When we add noise, we add to the stress. And so when you eliminate those things, it's it is absolutely crazy to watch this happen when all of that noise and all of those people are completely eliminated. But in order to do that, you have to have a plan. Everybody has to agree on it. You need a nurse champion. You need a physician champion. And then you get everybody together and you sim the hell out of it until you get it right. I see. So this is establishing something, a specific practice that's going to be happening at the hospital all the time, that whenever this happens, everybody immediately knows where to go to their places. Everybody immediately knows based upon their particular hospital, their particular situation. At the beginning of the, at the, beginning of the shift, they say, uh, this, wow. you're the med electric nurse tonight, you're the airway, you're the this, you're the this. This is our plan for the shift. Um, you know, if you have, if you have, um, hawks or, um, you know, patient care attendants or whatever your hospital has, you know, those, those people are defined in, in their roles in CPR. I want them to know where that stool is, where their towel is, because after the doc does that ultrasound, they better wipe that gel off, right? So everybody down to the very tiny little swab or, um, uh, or gel or whatever it is, they all know exactly what they need for their role. They take, when people are given that responsibility, the beauty of it is they take ownership for that. When you tell um, one of the paramedics working in the ER that um, you're responsible tonight for ACLA or for um, com chest compressions, and they will take ownership for that. They will make sure that the room is set up correctly. When you tell nurses that they're responsible for the, the crash cart and defibrillation, they are going to make sure that that card is ready to go. It is good to go. They are going to own that experience. I'm uh, I, maybe I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but this sounds like common sense, doesn't I, it? I mean, Holy shit! Yeah. I know, right? It absolutely sounds like common sense, and that's the thing that's so hard for me about this. This is not some crazy idea. Like I did not think of something novel, um, and and the guys in San Diego with Reanimate and ED ECMO didn't think of something novel. They just did common sense stuff. They, things that made sense to them. Communication, working together as a team, everybody sitting around a table. Oh, something else crazy. Train together. Doctors don't go into one room and nurses don't go into the other room and they train separately. They train together. They sim together. They work together. And it is freaking beautiful. 
It's like, uh, I've often thought that what you guys do in the hospital is kind of like what we do in the kitchen when you work in a, in a well-run kitchen. Like, everybody knows what their role is. You, you start at the beginning of the shift. Everybody, okay, you're washing dishes. You're on salad. You're on the hotline. You're on the fryer later. You're the one who's busting. You're the one who's expediting. Everybody knows what they're doing so that when, you know, a million tickets come in at the same time, everybody immediately goes to their stations. You set up your mise en place. You know where all your tools are. You have your knives at hand. Everything is sharp. And I guess I just always figured that that was what was going on in the ER as well, that everybody to their places and go. But it's sounding to me like that's not been the case. That's really surprising. There are, certainly there are some places where this is this is the thing. And as I've you know talked about this the last couple of years, you know, I've been approached by people who say, well, duh, yeah, that's what we do. Well, that's what we do. And then I have um, 10 times that number of nurses contacting me saying, oh my gosh, how do we start this here? You should see our ED. It's a disaster. Um, how do we get your help? Will you come to our hospital and talk to us and teach us how to do this? Um, and so so it is not happening everywhere. Um, and these are not small hospitals we're talking about here. We're not talking about, you know, your hospital in rural America. We're talking about level one and level two hospitals that are saying, we are a mess and can you come help us get it together? And again, none of these concepts are rocket science and you don't need me. You need my seven minute instruction on how to do this and someone with some initiative to get it together. But communication for this is the key, 100%. And lots of times we get into our silos and into our tribes and nobody wants to communicate and nobody wants to, you know, ruffle anybody's feathers. And so nobody wants to upset anyone. And the doctors are going to feel like we're trying to take their job. No, we're not. Um, or, you know, the nurses are going to feel like they can't do that. I have heard every excuse. I was like, can, can they read? Cause if they can read, they can, they can do an ACLS algorithm, right? Like, I mean, it's, we're making things so much more complicated. I had a physician tell me that that was outside of the nurse's scope of practice. I was like, really? Cause I got this ACLS card here that says it's not. <laughs> So, I mean, like, this is basic stuff here. None of this is rocket science. Uh, I mean, we're not doing brain surgery. I'm not cannulating ECMO on these patients. Um, Nurses are are not trying to get outside of their lane. This is 100% within their scope of practice. So in my experience, what I have seen is kind of like halfway in between those two different hospitals that you described. So in, in the trauma bay, when people go in for a trauma, it is very organized, very prescribed. You have an exact spot to stand. Everybody knows what role is where because of where they're standing. Everybody knows in the first 30 seconds what their role is going to be, what their job is going to be, and it runs very, very smoothly. And then we step off from there to, based on the patient. But for some reason, that very prescribed, very organized, very um, uh, specific ergonomics and roles and whatever does not translate into code blue. So if you have a medical cardiac or respiratory arrest, for some reason, we all just lose our minds and it's just a friend, a feeding frenzy. And it's, it's not a huge leap to take that and move it into the recess room. But for whatever reason, we don't. Part of that, that sometimes it's the, it's the team that's on shift that night, right? It can vary in the same hospital from one night. It is the baddest ass thing you've ever seen in your life to the biggest disaster the next night because different people are are in play different people are in charge different people are leading they either don't communicate well or they don't function well as a team and that's completely game-changing mm-hmm. H- hence the reason why you should have a, a shift uh, on every shift you need to do this each time right 
Well, and I think that's the beauty of having it that prescribed is if someone walks in the room that I've never seen before, but they're standing in that slot doing that job, I know exactly who they are and they know exactly who I am and we know what's about to happen, even though maybe we've never worked together or, or we haven't worked together a lot. When you have it this, um, this defined and this organized, that's okay. You know, if a stranger shows up in the room. Um, so a couple of things that I wanted to mention in one question. So we're talking specifically about ACLS, but this would apply to PALS, right? Um, NRP, if that's in your, if that's your thing, if you're NRP certified, this would apply to that as well. Um, and then, so my other uh, comment is that our buddies over at Recess Tonight, Rob and Alan, they presented about nurse-led code in, um, I think it was Philadelphia at Recess X. And so as part of their presentation, they did a simulation where Alan ran the, the algorithm part and they had a physician who had not participated in this before come in to do the simulation. And their, their kind of comment and observation was that initially the physician was really flat-footed, like, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but it didn't take very long at all for, I think it was a him, not sure, him or her, to realize that they had, what you said, this opportunity to go straight you know, normally the algorithm goes this way and the H's and T's are at the very bottom once we've sort of resuscitated or stabilized or run out of ideas. Now it's moved all the way to the top and you can customize. So ACLS is just a jumping off point. This is a way to take it and customize it for the specific patient that's laying in the stretcher at this moment. And it, boy, it was really quick that that f physician like bought in and understood the importance of this paradigm shift. Like this is a small thing that's a huge thing. Yeah, I mean, when um, when I was going to lecture on this at Smack in um, in Berlin, I was like, "Wow, I better I better try this out somewhere." I, I so I had to go to a hospital. I'm not I work for the um, for the county government, so I'm not affiliated with any hospital. So I went to a small pediatric emergency department um, and said, "All right, y'all, this is what I want to do. It's going to sound crazy." I spent about 20 minutes with over, you know, the course of a couple of weeks with each um, entity, with each participant. So nursing, respiratory, um, uh, radiology, pharmacy, um, the physicians, and talked to them about where they thought things should be. Do we need to rearrange the room? What what the plan was, everybody's roles, all those kinds of things. And then we simmed it. We simmed it without the education and training. And then we educated and trained on it. And we simmed it again. And the same thing, physician said that, or the physician said the exact same thing. Um, it took me a minute to be able to give that up. Uh -huh. But then the next time she gave it up, she was like, boom, boom, boom. And I mean, she made it, she had a million differentials. She, you know, came to a diagnosis. She was able to talk to the, to the mom in that, you know, the sim mom in that scenario, get a thorough history, figure out exactly what was going on. And she was like, wow, this is awesome. And it's ironic because one of the young ladies who came down from the ICU, who wasn't part of any of the training, had no idea what was going on that day. She go, she came down and she went, whoa, what's going on in here? This was awesome. And we were like, oh, yeah, we, we practiced this. We, we, <laughs> we had a plan, wow. right? So um, it took, you know, I mean, literally a couple hours of investment to get all of those people on board and and to do it and try it and then you have you have champions for life when they experience that oh my gosh this can make such a tremendous difference for our patients people get really motivated i think that there is definitely a um, correlation between nurses and job satisfaction um and and how they feel 
um, how important they feel at work and not like, oh, you're the best important. I'm talking about how how useful they feel, how if they feel purpose, um, if they feel like they have autonomy, if they get to use their brain. Those nurses want to stick around. The nurses that are there for to be taskers, to just do a job, to not have to think at all, those nurses don't stay very long. They're short-term nurses. And if hospitals get would get smart and doctors get tired of this nurse turnover all the time, they don't even bother to learn names anymore because this nurse is going to leave in six months or three months or whatever it is. If they would get smart, they would start including nurses into this practice and let them feel the ownership of good outcomes. So, and one of the things that I love that you bring up about this is there's no fancy equipment to buy. There's no lengthy training. This is not expensive. This is something you can do on shift. Um, and, uh, and, and yet the dividends are really, um, you know, there's a huge payoff for, as you've described for physicians with the cognitive offload for nurses with the purposefulness and the, uh, and attrition. Uh, but ultimately it's about this patient that's laying in the bed. You know, this is what, who's going to benefit in the end the most from it. You mentioned, Nisa, when you were talking about uh, the hospitals that you've been in, that it takes 30 seconds for, you know, you know, ensure that everybody's in place. But then you mentioned earlier, Ashley, how um, this nurse-led ACLS can shave seconds off um, because if everybody's in the right place and everybody knows their job and everything is in the right place, you have everything at your fingertips and you don't have to pause. And it struck me that 30 seconds is a long time when you're at that, that, that cusp between life and death and whether or not you can actually be resuscitated or not. So if you've, everybody's already got the training and it's just a question of putting things in the right place and, 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 and organizing things better, it, it seems like it's the, the cost benefit analysis is through the roof. So I was just in a um, case review this morning and listening to um, my my team, which is um, I would say is has some of the most elite nurses around, right? Extremely specialized. They were talking about a rescue case, um, and to listen to one of our senior flight nurses, Jen, talk about her performance. She's talking about seconds when she talks about what she could have done differently, or how she could have um, moved differently, or thought differently, or proceeded differently. We are talking about. I mean, two seconds at a time. And that's how elite athletes train. That's how Olympians train. That's how successful teams train is when we start getting into the, we're making improvements by these, this marginal gains improvements, this 1% stuff that doesn't seem like it matters happens to be the most important thing that we end up doing. You know, we talk about, and, um, we talk about, uh, communication and, I mean, there's literature last year or the year before that, you know, came out from a pediatric ICU study that said, you know, the first time that someone is nasty to a team member um, in a resuscitation, the communication completely breaks down. So the first time that someone, you know, talks ugly or snaps or shouts or whatever it is, the communication absolutely breaks down. So every time you talk sideways to one of your colleagues in the middle of a resuscitation, you are causing your patient harm. And when you start to think about stuff that way, it gets real, real, real fast. You know, you are super fired up about this. I have caught the vision now and I'm trying to tell everyone. I even I went to my home department and started approaching the providers like, hey, what do you guys think about this? And um, there were two of them that latched onto it immediately. They happened to be the two two that are younger. They're they're dialed into FOMED. They are one's involved in a podcast. Um 
and immediately they could see, wow, this is this is something I would definitely try. And if it's what you think, you know, if, if it is what you promise it to be, this could be a really huge thing. Immediately understood the, the um, importance of this. So what would be, now that I have found a couple of providers who are at least interested in it, what would be the next step? So if, we're, if we have a listener who who says, I think this is a good move for my department. Talk me through what would be the next couple of steps to bring a, this idea into practice in their, in their department. So, um, so the, the website that um, we put together when we, um, prior to the workshop at ENA gives list, has a video there that talks about the various steps and the roles and understanding exactly what you're, what you're aiming for. So I would say that, you know, if they can get people to listen for seven or eight minutes of me, yammering on um, gives a very kind of well-rounded idea of what we're trying to achieve. And then from there, it's literally sitting down with some scratch paper or, you know, um, keynote on a computer and changing the ergonomics of the room, deciding who's got, whose roles are what. Um, you can scratch it down on a clipboard, whatever it is, but it's getting everybody together. So it's stopping at your favorite coffee shop, bringing in coffee for everybody, and get everybody around a table, all the various um, players and departments, and say, this is what we want to do, and we need your help. We need your participation because we want to do the best thing for our patients. We want to be an exceptional team here. We want to be the team all over the country that people talk about. It took me one visit to Sharp Memorial Hospital in San Diego, and I was like, wow, I'm thinking about moving here. I mean, these, these people are, they are dialed in. They, I mean, and it, it happened as a result of the fact that they started doing, um, ECMO or eCPR in the emergency department. And the secondary piece of that, what happened was this insanely beautiful organized resuscitation. And so it was like this secondary effect. And then they realized it and went, Oh my gosh, you know, this is a really cool thing. Um, and these people, they work together. They respect each other. They, um, I, I mean, it's an, it's an incredible thing to see. I really always look forward to going to see them and watching it because the, even just the attitude in the emergency department, the physicians and the nurses and um, how they work together and engage with, you know, talk to each other. I mean, these guys are all lining up at night after, a, you know, or in the mornings after a hard shift and high five and, you know, making high five lines like they, you know, just ran a marathon. And it, there's an esprit de corps that comes with this kind of teamwork. And I think if you can get people to buy in, hey, we're going to do this and just get them to sim it twice. If you can record it and hang um, GoPros around the room, that's what we did. And we timestamp stuff. And we, and we looked at how long did it take us to get to the first differential? How long did it take us to talk to the family? How long did it take to, you know, the administration of first medication? All those kinds of things. And once we simmed and we practiced and everyone understood their role and what they were doing and we did it again, the times drastically decreased, right? Wow. And so sure, is this like, oh, this is, you know, Ashley's one experiment and, you know, kind of doing this thing. Um, so it's not, it's not real research. It's just, you know, me just trying stuff out. Um, but it, but it worked. So um, I don't, and I don't think, just like you said, this is common sense stuff. So I don't think we need a mass of literature to prove that it works. But I will tell you that there is a mass of literature out there to support concepts like communication, concepts like cognitive offloading, concepts like task saturation, um, and how our brain works. And th there's loads of silent there of science out there um, discussing those things. So get the people together and decide we're going to do this. Make it work for you. 
pick out the important the important pieces, the um, nurse-led ACLS, team resuscitation, assigned roles, ergonomics, um, make a place for everybody and, and, and get it done. So the website that you were mentioning, we will, we will link into our show notes and it's really got a ton of resources for someone who wants to bring this to their shop. So I love what you said about, um, get passionate about it, then find yourself a physician champion, get yourself a respiratory therapy champion. If that's, you know, how it goes in your shop. Uh, get some folks together that are gonna that are gonna go after this with you, and I think too that you you like to point out that the importance in the simulation is to do it in the actual room where a patient would be. Not yes, don't do it in a sim lab. Over in a sim lab. Yeah, yeah, no, bring the mannequin over. Don't do it in a sim lab. Have a you know have an have a bystander, have a family member simulated as well. Um, do it in the actual room. Um, because mm-hmm. we can't, uh, it doesn't get in, in situ simulation is extremely important. And is there room in the, and I, I totally believe in the importance of the ergonomics and you have some schematics on the website that people can use as a jumping off point and, and then customize it to their shop. Um, is there room for family in your family, um, liaison in this code when you have everything in place? Yeah. So I think if, if, um, you know, there's a lot of literature out there that discusses, um, the presence of family, particularly in pediatric cases and that sort of thing. If the family's not, um, a distraction, um, then sure. Um, does it need to be 25 people? No. Um, and so what I would do is if you have an, if you have a hospital where you've decided that a family is a key player, then you assign someone like the social worker, the security guard, the um, pastoral, chaplain. yeah, the chaplain, pastoral care services, whomever that is. And they understand their role too. Their role is to communicate to that family member, to keep them calm, to keep them off in this place. So we should put them in at this portion of the room, you know, close to the door if we need to move them out for some reason um, and make sure that they're safe and, and we're safe from them. Um, and... And communicate that to that whoever's role that is to kind of corral them or manage them. And then that's their job. Um, and and then when the physician, that alpha doc, goes to look for that family member, they don't have to look all around. They don't have to walk around a waiting room. They don't have to, you know, walk out in the hallway. They don't have to ask questions or be awkward. They know exactly who they're going to to find that family member because that's, that's whoever's job it's been assigned to. Well, the family presence at the bedside during resuscitation is a, is a passion of, of nieces, a passion of ours. We have a whole episode about that. And one of the things that um, we learned was um, the benefit to the family. We've talked about the benefit to the patient, the physician, and to the nurse um, with a nurse-led ACLS. Um, but I can see how if there is a family presence um, policy in place at the hospital and their family members there, seeing a well-oiled machine, um, this choreographed where everybody knows their place and there is no sense of chaos in front of them. I can see how that could only impart more peace if the code is ultimately unsuccessful. Um, um, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. It, it, it can't, it can't hurt. In that case, the benefit of that organization extends out to any witnesses that, uh, that are in the room at that time. Absolutely. And it leaves them with, you know, with knowing that their team that took care of their loved one was the best chance that they had, the absolute best chance that they had because they were so well choreographed. They were so well rehearsed. There wasn't the stress level in the room. No one was screaming at anyone. No one was, you know, and so they, the, all the what ifs go away 
when mm-hmm. um, when everything is is handled exactly just that way. And they they can the physician has the opportunity to develop that relationship with them on the front end during that resuscitation to go, you know, what's going on? What's the history? Okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna do these things and get you know approval and 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 so they they've already made that instead of the first encounter being, you know, I'm sorry, you know, your loved ones has died. Um, and so, so I think that that's, I think that that's wonderfully healthy, but someone has to have the the job of managing that, that individual. Absolutely. Um, so there's some chatter in the nurse led ACLS, um, arena about the terminology used. And we've said alpha doc, we've said nurse led ACLS, nurse led code. Can you talk about your preferences for the terminology or does it even matter? No, it absolutely, it absolutely matters because I think everything is a little bit of a communicate is communications important and precision of words. Language is also important. So, um, when we're talking about, um, I am very, very, um, careful about saying nurse led ACLS. I'm not suggesting that the nurse is running the totality of the resuscitation. And I want that to be really, really clear for people. We're not saying that we don't need physicians and we've got this all figured out. We, we absolutely need every member of our team to be there that we have. Um, I'm saying that nurses are absolutely capable of running ACLS. This should be completely offloaded to them and let the physicians do what the, the physicians do. They diagnose, uh-huh. right? Um, and treat. So, um, that's, so, so I'm, I correct people often. Um, and do so online as well, um, that we're talking about nurse-led ACLS, not a nurse-led code. So I'm, so I'm very, very careful about that. Yep. What are some of the barriers that you hear? We've kind of mentioned a few of them all the way through. Yeah, the one that, the one that gets me is it's outside of, the, it's outside of nurse's scope. That blows my mind. Um, because in a lot of these facilities, um, especially when you have rapid response teams and those kinds of things, nurses are doing this anyway until someone gets there. Right. Careful. And then my, my favorite one is we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough staff. You're right. But then you and I do it in the back of a helicopter with one other person. So and I and I think that's that's why this makes sense to us is because we have our space ergonomically designed. We know where all of our stuff is immediately. We can reach it. It's exactly perfect. And we know what the other person is going to do and we can anticipate um, and so we have a very clear understanding of what our roles are, which is why we can do stuff in seven minutes that most ERs can't get done in the first 20 minutes. Right. Um, and so, so yeah, we don't have the staff for that, or we have too many residents and the residents need to learn how to do ACLS. No, they don't. They can read an algorithm. I'm pretty sure they're very smart. They got they're in medical school. They made it all the way to residency. I don't think they need to do that. They need to be standing next to that physician and learning how to handle that role because that's going to be their role. So, um, so that's one I've heard, uh, several times. Um, I've heard our, our doctors would just never, would just never go with that. Oh, and I've also heard our new, our younger nurses can't do it. They just don't have the confidence. Well, then you better grow your nurses up. Um, and, and put them into, look, you, nurses do a really crappy job of taking care of their own, um, and, and developing our nurses and, and giving them opportunities. So you start growing nurses and the best way to do that is when everybody's sitting, you know, I mean, everybody's patients are quiet or whatever you for, I'm not supposed to say that word, I think, but. <laughs> well, that answers that question that we forgot to ask at the top of the episode. Yeah, we typically that that was great. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I'm not to say that word, but 
But when things are okay and manageable, then take that nurse in there and run her through an algorithm, right? Yeah. It, it can be a tabletop simulation. You can real quick, for, you know, every shift, start the, the shift with a, a quick tabletop sim um, and build and develop confidence in nurses. Have her stand right next to you while you run that ACLS algorithm um, and let her watch and learn and try and step in when she's, you know, when she can um, or he can. Um, but develop those nurses. And that's our, that's our job is to not eat our young, but to, to feed them. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is the days of eating our young are, they're going away. They're gone. And this is, and it's those kind of, that's like a, a sort of a subversive way of doing it. It was saying, oh, they just can't handle it. They're too new. No, that's BS. They've, they've got the card. They've got the ACLS. Now let's, Let's do it. It just takes a little, a little bit of a shove sometimes to, to, you know, to gain the confidence, to have the experience. Um, But, but again, you have to have, you got to have folks that want to, that want to buy into it because if one, one team member isn't buying it, um, particularly between the nurses and physicians, if they're not into it and they're not buying it, they're, and are going to be obstructive, it's not going to work. That's right. Um, The, the uh, website that the teach co teaching co-op, the teaching co-op, that you are part of has set up is really, really great with lots of resources and lots of good information. Is there anywhere else that you would direct listeners to as a resource? Yeah. So, um, so, I mean, this is not a well-researched topic, obviously, um, or, or we would have the, the links there. We have links, plenty of links to the literature surrounding the concepts. Um, Scott Weingart on MCRIT has talked, um, a great deal about this. Um, Joe Belezzo and Zach Shiner on ED ECMO have talked, um, significantly and dedicated entire episodes to this. Um, so those are really kind of the, from a physician standpoint are really kind of the leaders out there that are saying, this is what we should be doing. Um, we've been talking about it, um, and shouting about it as much as we can. Um, we've tried to involve, um, ENA and, um, and, and getting the kind of getting the word out and doing as much as we can to help, to help push this movement forward. Um, so, uh, it, we've discussed at great length, um, writing a paper and I hope that that will come, you know, in my spare time, um, later this year <laughs> <laughs> or in 2020. Um, I, I hope to, I hope to have a, a paper out there that some folks can reference when they want to, when they are ready to do this and implement this in their facility. But I also hope p- people don't wait for the literature because as we decided before, this is just common sense stuff, you know, it's just regular old common sense be nice to each other, talk nice to each other, know your job, know what you're supposed to do. Don't, don't shout, don't run around the room like a crazy person. It's real easy. Yeah. I, uh, we will include links to those episodes that you were mentioning as well from the physicians, but it brings up a great point that physicians are the ones that initially called for this assistance. They needed the help in the codes and you've got co-workers right next to you shoulder to shoulder that can help you and so this is not nurses coming in to revolutionize the code blue area this is physicians asking for help and then us going hell yeah we will absolutely we've been waiting for you to ask let's go i mean these guys these guys just don't have i mean i think i think we have to take a little of the ego out of it right i think the i think the docs that are real worried about this are real upset and territorial about this have an ego problem right this isn't about you this isn't about you being in command and control or um, a nurse being more in charge than you or having more leadership or whatever it is this is about taking care of a patient and if we can do this better by doing it in a way that that puts more than you know puts a team in charge instead of one brain in charge then we're doing a better job for the patient and that's the most important thing and if that is our guiding ethos all the time is this in the best interest of the patient um, I just don't think you can lose. 
I, I think that's the perfect closing comment. Absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. This is fascinating. Thank you for giving us your time this evening. I felt um, like I was shouting at you the entire time, but I can't help myself. I get really jazzed up about this. Look at my, look at my, look at my cheeks, like the, the hot flash that I'm having right now. I'm either that I or I'm a puzzle. I don't know which one, but whatever. No, the enthusiasm <laughs> and passion for this is, is I think it's going to fire up our listeners. It's just so, a, I mean, so easy, right? Yeah, yeah, such a no, great I, idea. When I like heard gravity. about it, I was, I was instantly like, I'm, I'm on board. I'm in. Let's freaking do this. Yeah, well, and you know, were, are you? Did you get interviewed by the chick from ENA for their article? I did. I thought so. So she called me, and I redirected her. You know, I'm very, very careful to not. This wasn't my idea, and it didn't start as my movement. It just I went out there and saw it working, and I just happened to have a bigger mouth than you know, the nurses that are out there, they're tremendously <laughs> humble and they're very quiet about it and they just are doing their thing and, you know, being awesome. And I, um, have a big mouth and I was super excited and I was like, you guys, what, you know, what? And they taught that the very first time with Barbies, they had little Barbies wow. and they had built little blocks <laughs> with a room and a little schem- wow. schematic of the room. And it was hilarious. And I was like, this is Fantastic. genius. But like Angelie Hecker is like, She's a genius, but she's too. So I, I tried to get ENA to, I'm like, she's the one who, who did this thing, right? Like, I'm not, I don't want to take credit for anybody else's, you know, um, inspiration, but I mean, she truly inspired me enough to, to get red faced about it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're championing it and, uh, we're giving you another platform. Hopefully we can reach a whole bunch more nurses and, and continue to spread the good word. Yeah. Um, we'll just do a quick wrap up. Um, we will, as Nisa said, we're going to post some links on our webpage for this. We'll also have a transcript coming eventually for people who prefer to uh, read as opposed to the audio medium of the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Um, anything else you'd like to add at the last moment here, Ashley? Where can folks find you? Oh, yeah. Where can we find you on your uh, Twitter, social media? Yeah, yeah stuff? everything I have is um, at Ashley Liebig. So it's A S H L E Y L I E B I G. And uh, people can find me there. And if they want to hit me up um, and ask further questions or whatever, they can find me, Ashley Liebig at Gmail. Okay. And um, don't spam me, please. But. Um, but if you, if you have a, if you have a question or there's some way that I can help you, um, or, you know, come out to your facility and, you know, shout at people for you, um, I'm happy to, happy to do that. That's great. That's fabulous. Um, everybody, please, uh, check out, um, the links on the webpage and, uh, send us an email at the keyword podcast at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, thanks for tuning in and we will talk to you soon. Bye, Nisa. Bye, Lisa. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Ashley. All right, now we can hit stop.